0: No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for the way in which you have worked in this congregation through the Holy Spirit, through your word. We're thankful for your provision for so many things in this congregation. But above all, we're thankful for the folks here who are focused on your word, dedicated to learning your word, growing spiritually, and letting their thinking and their lives be shaped by your word, desiring to enjoy that fellowship, that relationship with you on a day-by-day basis, recognizing that the only way that we can experience the fullness of our salvation is as we walk with you by means of God the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that we might not grow lax in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth or become distracted by the details of life but that we might continue our focus upon you. For it is our desire to glorify you in all that we say and do. And now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us what transpired during this horrible time uh, in the life of our Lord, but a time that was necessary for our salvation that led to his uh, paying the penalty for our sin on the cross. And we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Matthew 26:57. And this morning we're going to move into the second trial. We got through sort of an introduction to the trials last week and the first trial before the uh, former high priest, Annas, who was also the father-in-law of the man who was the current high priest at the time, Caiaphas. And we looked at that in the um, Gospel of John. Then today we're going to look at the second and the third trials. The third trial is basically basically a rubber stamp of the second trial, and so we'll cover that rather briefly. Nothing of great significance that's going on there. As I pointed out last week, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the trials and the denials of Jesus the denial of jesus here is peter's denial of christ which takes place between the second and the third trial but for teaching purposes we'll cover the second and third trial this morning and then we'll talk about the de- peter's denials next week these um this time as we examine how our lord faced and handled undeserved suffering The false accusations that were brought against him and the illegal actions that took place by both the religious and government authorities are something that should give us some things to think about as we think about our own response to undeserved suffering, our own response to governing authorities that may be, uh, we may think they're illegitimate. Uh, they may be demanding things that we think are not right or constitutional or even legal and how we handle that individually in our own soul is uh, we're given an example here in the lord jesus christ now in the gospels we see that jesus went through six trials now in the literature sometimes they're referred to now a lot of people want to call them hearings or uh, dr fruchtenbaum calls them just two trials with three different stages in each one but basically they're six different trials when jesus is brought before six different authorities that arrive at uh, their decisions And so they're broken down this way. There are initially three religious trials conducted by the Jewish authorities, and they are trying to come up with an indictment against Jesus that would be worthy of death. They have been plotting since his first year of public ministry uh, to put him to death. So last week we looked at the first trial before Annas, as I said earlier, he is the former high priest, but he's the real power behind the high priesthood. The current high priest is Caiaphas, who conducts the second trial, and <clears throat> there will be. And Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and there will be five of his sons in addition who will all be high priests during the next thirty or forty years. He's got a lock on the power, in in. Uh, in Judea, and he is as corrupt as he can be. As I pointed out last time, he is a, the godfather of godfathers. He is corrupt. He uh, is, he intimidates people. He's embezzling money. Uh, there's no crime that takes place that's not really under his control. So we see that mentality that pervades the uh, religious uh, authorities as they are uh, examining the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had a personal hatred uh, for the Lord because uh, he controlled all the money changers in the temple, as I pointed out last time. And so when Jesus came in at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end of his ministry and overturned the tables, uh, that was a direct attack on the finances of the high priest. What we see here is a great example of what Peter talks about, passage we've been studying on Thursday nights. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And here we see the just, the righteous one, standing before the unjust and being judged by the unjust ones. And it's a perfect example of how the Lord Jesus Christ was totally relaxed during this time, and he as he was in control, even as these earthly authorities were in rebellion against him and seeking to control things, uh, he was the one who was ultimately in control. I've pointed out in the previous lessons, as we looked at the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then uh, some things last week in the first trial with Annas that there are several uh, laws or rules that have been established for just trials by the Pharisees and uh, the religious authorities at this time. And so I want to review those, but I want to make a comment. This, The list of, I think it's 22, that have been laid out by uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, who's done an excellent job in his four-volume work on Yeshua, the life of uh, the Messiah from a Jewish perspective, in laying these out. When I was in seminary, I got a introduction to rabbinical theology and the Mishnah through a couple of courses I took under Dr. Alan Ross, Dr. Ross had just returned from Cambridge where he had received his second doctorate, his PhD in rabbinical studies. And my term paper for that course was on the uh, ways in which the trials of Jesus violated the Mishnah. This is very controversial. You read anything, you might read some people of a little more, or let let me put it this way, a less than conservative stance. And they tend to try to say, well, we don't really know if these laws were even in effect at the time. And that's because the Mishnah itself was not codified until around AD 200. So for another 170 years or so, but what was codified was that which was uh, part of the oral tradition of the religious leaders of Israel. So this stuff wasn't made up in the first or second century. There might have been a few modifications. Uh, we don't know. But for the most part, the, that which was codified in the Mishnah had been around for a, a, a long time. Uh, another thing that, that we, we should observe is that Several of the things that are brought out by the gospel writers are there to, in order to show that Jesus was being treated in an unjust manner and in a manner that violated these, these particular uh, laws and, and protocols that were in place. Another thing to point out there is that it's interesting to note that in all of the previous places, where the gospel writers talk about the chief priests and the elders and the sadducees and the pharisees that when they when the gospel writers identify the different religious groups that had it in for Jesus the pharisees are almost always mentioned scribes were part of the pharisaical group all the way up through the arrest of Jesus but what's interesting is the gospels never mention the Pharisees again after the arrest. Now, I put all that together to say that it's very possible that the Sanhedrin they met, because they only needed a minimum of 23 people there, and there were 24 members of the Sanhedrin that were Sadducees. So they only needed 23. There may not have been any or only one or two or very few Pharisees present at the trials, which would mean the Sanhedrin, which I mean the Sadducees, which didn't care about the Pharisees, could much more easily just ignore any of the Pharisaical rules and laws. And the group that did survive after the... uh, destruction of the temple in 70 AD were the Pharisees, and they really gave birth to modern rabbinical Judaism. So it's very likely that that these rules were in place, but the, San, but the Sadducees just didn't care. And so you have a violation taking place of the protocols that had been agreed upon because once people want to rebel against God and reject God, it doesn't matter what the laws are. They don't care. It doesn't matter what the rules are. They don't care if there's First Amendment rights. They don't care if people ought to be treated with respect. If they are worshipers of God and the truth of God's word, then they need to be removed from the society, removed from culture, and not have not have any impact. So I pointed out, Here's five rules that have already been violated. These are the first five in Arnold's list of 22. It says, first of all, there was to be no arrest by religious authorities that was affected by a bribe. And, of course, Judas was bribed to betray the Lord. Second rule, no steps of criminal proceedings were to occur after sunset. And so his arrest and the first two trials were conducted in the dark between sunset and sunrise. The third law that's violated is that judges or members of the Sanhedrin were not allowed to participate in an arrest. And when the crowd, the multitude came with the Roman uh, (coughs) cohort, they also came with members of the Sanhedrin, and so that's a violation of law. Fourth, there were to be no trials before the morning sacrifice, and two of these occurred before the morning sacrifice, the first two, and then rule number five or law number five, there were not to be any secret trials, only public trials, and so that, too, is violated. So what's the application? If you think you are a victim of injustice... Guess who preceded you? This whole idea that we have in this culture of victimization is just absurd. We're all victims. We're all victims of Adam's sin. We're all victims of sinful people. And so the idea that somehow our parents failed us or our teachers failed us or somebody else failed us is just, it's relatively different from everybody, but there's no excuse that we can fall back on, Jesus was treated the worst. And he provides us the example. He did not play the victimization card, and neither should any Christian whatsoever. So that brings us to our start in our in the second trial. In Matthew 26, 57, we're told by Matthew, who skips past the trial with Annas, he says, those who laid hold of Jesus, that is, after the Garden of Gethsemane, they first they took him to Annas and then to uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. And I pointed out last time that verb for assembled is the uh, cognate to the noun for synagogue. So that is, it doesn't mean it's a synagogue, but it emphasizes that, relig- has that religious connotation to it. We know that at the end of this trial, Jesus will identify himself very clearly as the Messiah. He identifies himself as the Son of Man who will be sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. He just states it very calmly but very forcefully, and that is the basis for their indictment. They're going to indict him and execute him On the basis of him being the son of God. That's the indictment. So as we look at this, he's brought before Caiaphas. I brought out some things last week related to Caiaphas that his full name was Joseph Caiaphas. He's the son-in-law of Annas, the former high priest. That he came to power, Annas was removed or deposed from power in AD 15. There followed a, uh, two to three years when other high priests were appointed. None of them lasted uh, more than a year, and finally, the, he was the uh, <clears throat> he was appointed uh, by uh, that is Caiaphas was appointed by Valerius Gratus, and he was in power for almost 30 years, from 18 or so until 37, which indicated he had a remarkable ability to schmooze the political leaders and to uh, give them whatever they wanted. He was a master of wheeling and dealing and political expediency. So he, uh, he was the high priest, and he was basically the puppet of his father-in-law, uh, Annas, Annas. It's significant that he has pointed out, we saw last time in John 18:14. John reminds us that it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And the picture that I have there is what we believe is the ossuary or the bone box, the burial box of his uh, bones of, of Caiaphas and Joseph. Ben Caiaphas is inscribed on the end of that ossuary the family uh, burial site was discovered uh, several years ago the statement that's alluded to there by John in John 18 is from John 11 49 to 51 where Caiaphas is addressing uh, the high priest and he says to them Uh, you know, nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, what he's talking about is that this is a political event. Maybe it's good to give the Romans someone, and then they will relax their pressure on us. But John says there was a divine power behind this and that he was prophesying without realizing it in verse 51 he said now this he did he did not say on his own authority but being high priest that year he prophesied that jesus would die for the nation so that was an unintended prophecy on his part so the second trial is going to uh, take place before caiaphas and and the sanhedrin and they're going to meet in the home of the high priest now this was a rather large place because it would accommodate Uh, All of these uh, visitors, the Sanhedrin, was usually made up of about 71 uh, individuals. And so they could all come in there. They could come in the courtyard. Not, Of course, not that many showed up that night, I don't believe. And that it is uh, in this home. There was one wing that was where Annas lived, his father-in-law, and then Caiaphas and his wife and family were in the other wing. These first two verses, as I pointed out, gives us a, a orientation to what happens. We're going to follow two streams of action, one inside following Jesus and one outside following Peter. We're going to focus on what happens to Jesus. In the parallel passages in Mark chapter 14, 53, and in Luke chapter 22, verse 54, we read about uh, their accounts of this time. Mark says they led Jesus away to the high priest. He doesn't name him. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Luke tells us this. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And then in Matthew 26:59 we read... Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council, that is the Sanhedrin, that's the literal word there, Sanhedron, which is the Greek, this, so this is a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin, sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So what happens here is that there is a violation, another violation of the law The Sanhedrin trials were not to be conducted anywhere except in the Hall of Judgment in the temple compound, so they are not meeting at the uh, legally prescribed location. The hall that is uh, spoken of there was an inner court of the temple and was known as the Lishket HaGazit. It was one of five chambers in the temple court that was north of the court of the Israelites and it was named Gazit either because it was of hewn stone or because it was cut off so the root of that word has to do with something that is cut so it's either referring to the stone that's cut or it is referring to the fact that it was cut off or a distinct location from the other other chambers according to the uh, Talmud So, the Sanhedrin, when it came to meet, was composed, if everyone was there, of 71 members. And it was carefully divided along party lines. 24 seats went to the chief priests, who were all Sadducees. Now remember, Sadducees are the liberals. They're the ones who don't really believe in the truth of the Bible. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in the existence of angels. And so they are the theologically liberal wing. The Pharisees are the theologically conservative wing. So 24 seats went to the Sadducees, 24 seats went to the elders, who are Pharisees, and 22 seats went to the scribes, who were also Pharisees. So that's 46 to 24. So the Sadducees were clearly outnumbered. And then one seat went to the high priest, who was also a a Sadducee, so what we see here is a breakdown, so all they needed in order to pass a judgment in a capital crime was a vote of twenty three so they didn't need really need to have any Pharisees present at all. All they had to do was have all the Pharisees there i mean all the Sadducees there, and they could easily uh, condemn Jesus. Uh, to death, or at least recommend the death penalty, that would be then taken to the uh, to the Roman authorities. To become a member of the Sanhedrin, the Midrash states that an elder must not be given a seat in the chamber of hewn stone unless he has been appointed a judge in his own city. So he's got to work up the chain of command. He's got to start off as a as a as basically a rookie and get appointed to a political position in his hometown. After he has been there for a while, he can be promoted and given a seat on the Temple Mount. And from there, he can be promoted and given a seat in the Hell. Uh, That was another governing body. And from there, he could be promoted and given a seat in the Chamber of Hewn Stone sitting with the uh, Sanhedrin. So politics... Then as now played a role in who was actually, actually there and actually, uh, present. So the Sanhedrin comes together and in verse, uh, 59 we read, now the chief priests, elders, and all the councils sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Now this is almost a Laughable situation. Because you've got somewhere, I think, between 25, maybe even 40, but probably a little smaller number, around 30, who are gathered together, and they just hate Jesus. They just despise him. They despise what he's taught. They despise his theology. They hate him, and they want to Murder him, they want him dead and out of the way they're blaming all their ills on Jesus and so they have brought together this kangaroo court and they're going to uh, trump up these charges, manufacture charges against Jesus and yet they're put a little bit off their game because what happened was if you remember going back to matthew twenty uh, twenty six one or the the first part there, the last part of chapter 25, no, it's the first part of 26, they didn't want to arrest him and kill him during the feast time because they didn't want to upset the multitude. So their idea was let let the whole Passover week get by, and then we're going to arrest and and, and kill Jesus. But what happened was Jesus exposed Judas at, pass, at the Passover meal with the disciples. Judas knew that he had to leave. That if they're going to arrest him, they had to do it right then, right now. And so he went to the uh, chief priests and he said, "We've got to do it right now." And so they were thrown off their game. They thought they had another week, so they know they're going to have to do this right then. They went to went, probably went to Pilate to get a cohort assigned to them, but then they're running around. We've got to have witnesses. We've got to find somebody. And so they're just they're they're off balance. And so Jesus is there, and we can picture Jesus as relaxed. He's in control. And one after another, he hears these witnesses come out who are telling the most outlandish things about what they have uh, heard him say or what they've seen him do. They're telling these stories that have no basis in fact, and no two of them can agree with each other. And they may have had 10, 15, 20 different, and they're just trying to find two that will agree with each other, because according to the law, they have to have two witnesses that can agree with each other. And they are just frustrated. It's, it, it's becoming ridiculous. It's a farce, and they know it, and Jesus sees it, and He's just, um, He's just very relaxed. Now this gives us an example of a relaxed mental attitude. I don't know about you, but one of the things that does irritate me at times is injustice. And we see a lot of it in our world today. I'm not talking about the kind of injustice that the social justice warriors are uh, demonstrating about, but the kind of injustice where you have people who are everything from people who are treated uh, wrongly to people who are treated wrongly in courts to various uh, political figures who somebody claims did something, and next thing you know, everybody's throwing them under the bus, and there's no legal procedure. There are no corroborating uh, witnesses. There is a total uh, ignoring of the rule that we are innocent until proven guilty, and so we see this kind of injustice. And I know some of you get probably as irritated at something like that as I do, which means that we've lost our relaxed mental attitude. The Lord maintains his relaxed mental attitude and he shows us how we are to handle it, that he is in control and God is always in control when we're seeing these things happen in the world around us. It may happen at work, it may happen at school. Uh, these kinds of things happen throughout our culture and they're more common. Uh, one test you can take for yourself, just quietly between you and the Lord, is what happens when you sit down and you hear or read some news item and you immediately see this injustice and you're just you just get irritated. So I've written this in my notes this morning, and five minutes later, I see this alert on my phone that a group of social justice warriors are going to take a knee at the Houston Texans football game today. And I'm immediately irritated. And the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, you just wrote that, now we're going to test you a little bit. We have to develop a relaxed mental attitude that the Lord is in control even when injustice is taking place. And the greatest injustice in all of human history is what is taking place right here before us. And the Lord is totally relaxed and uh, totally in charge. And so they're trotting out these uh, <clears throat> these. False witnesses, and of course, that violates another uh law according to because they are they can't find two witnesses that can agree uh, with each other. It breaks a law, another law that say, also says uh, during the trial the defense had the first word before the prosecutors could present. Their accusations. So Jesus has not had the first word. He's the defense. The prosecutors are presenting accusations, but they can't agree uh, with each other. And it also gets a little bit uh, comical. We read in Matthew 14:55. Now the chief priests and all the council saw testimony. Uh, I got this on the screen. Mark 1455, and the chief priests and council also saw testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. And then in Matthew 26, 60, it also says, even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And now if we read Matthew, this is what they say. And they, two false witnesses came forward and said that this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, Mark's account helps us to understand the, the conflict and the problem. In um, Mark's account, we read the statement, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple. You see the difference, one statement says Jesus said I'm able to destroy the temple the other one says he said I will destroy the temple so they don't agree with each other they're they're talking about the same event but they can't agree as to exactly what he said is he able to or is he going to do it neither one of them are right this is referring to something Jesus said back in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry and there Jesus said destroy this temple And in three days I will raise it up. Now when he said destroy, it's a second person plural. He's saying, y'all destroy this temple. He didn't say anything about what he was going to do to the temple. He said, "If he's basically saying, if y'all destroy the temple, I will build it up. I will raise it up in three days. And, of course, as John goes on to explain in verses 21 and 22, he was talking about the temple of his body and his future resurrection, which the disciples recalled uh, after he rose from the dead. Now, they can't get these two... Uh, False witnesses to agree with each other, and yet they're trying to get some kind of blasphemy charge uh, brought against Jesus related to the uh, related to the temple. This violates the rule that uh, there had to be two or three witnesses, and their testimony had to agree in every detail that's based in Deuteronomy chapter nineteen verses fifteen through nineteen where we read, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now, by now, almost all of you know about these claims that came out against Judge uh, Roy Moore running for the Senate in Alabama. And you should have been uh, amazed and indignant that anybody automatically condemned him, and yet you had all these moderate Republicans who were condemning him within seconds, yet there's no confirmatory witness. It's all he said, she said, and somebody may say, well, you know, you have five or six different women who've come forward and claimed that he did X, Y, or Z, but then now you have a host of women that he grew up with, some were former girlfriends, those he dated, who are all saying just the other, opposite. It's a he said, she said, and the law has to work in the favor of the individual and the innocent. Where do we get these ideas of the need for two or three witnesses? It comes from our biblical heritage. It comes out of the Mosaic law that we can't just condemn somebody uh, just because somebody makes a horrible claim about their behavior. Now, he may be guilty, he may not be guilty, but we have to operate on the rule of law, which says that you can't condemn somebody unless there are two or three witnesses, not one witness of five different acts, but two or three witnesses of individual acts. And witnesses, if you have them in certain situations, can even be scientific witness, like DNA or something like that. But, of course, none of that exists in this particular case. So we always have to give someone the benefit of the doubt based on the law, unless, of course, there's hard evidence, even if we... Know they're probably guilty. That's how our system operates. But apparently not anymore, especially in a hostile political environment. So they make these various claims, and there's a contradiction between uh, the two uh, witnesses' claims that uh, did he say, I'm, I am able, which is his potentiality, or did he say he would destroy uh, the temple? So they can't get him to agree and therefore they can't come up with some a crime that they could take to a roman court uh in order to get the death penalty because at this time the jews were not allowed to execute anybody on their own they had to bring up the charges get the evidence and then take it to the roman authorities uh to get their um to get their permission But in all of this, as we sit back and we can chuckle or laugh at what the uh, comedy must have been like, trotting out all these witnesses with all these different different um, false claims and manufactured claims about Jesus, one person is not there with a relaxed mental attitude. And that is Caiaphas. As each witness comes forward and fails to corroborate another witness, he's getting more and more upset until finally he, after hearing this, and he sees that they're close enough, let's just make it work, even if it violates the law. And so he's going to enter into his own little drama and distract everybody from the legalities and assume that they have said the same thing. And so he jumps up and he says to Jesus, do you answer nothing? Aren't you going to say anything? Because throughout all of this, Jesus is sitting there calmly and quietly and never says anything. He's probably chuckling a little to himself as see the frustration mount. And so he is going to call upon Jesus to say something. Now, this again is a violation of the laws related to evidence. He, no person was to, uh, no accused was to testify against himself. This was to avoid two situations. First, that if a man was uh, wanted to have suicide by government, he couldn't confess to some crime that was a capital offense. And second, somebody could not, so somebody could not uh, twist his words and pervert justice in the trial and what we see is that jesus exercises his civil rights now this is important to see here is that jesus operates within the law we have a lot of discussion about what do you do when the government is outside the law and this government is clearly outside the law but jesus stays within the law And he is using the law in order to expose what's going on. Now, the end result is going to be the same, but he stays totally within the law. He keeps silent, and this. Uh, angers Caiaphas even more. And so Caiaphas probably screams at him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. Christos is the Greek translation of Messiah. I like to keep it in terms of the the Jewish term because that really focuses us on the issue. He says, uh, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Now we need to stop here just a minute. Maybe slow down and understand what's going on. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is going to answer in verse 64 and say, it is as you said. Now that comes across a little awkward for us. What does that actually mean? And and you may remember a time in recent years when there was sort sort of a slang that if somebody said something and we agreed with it, we said, you said it. And what we meant by that was, I agree with you. Well, this is the idiom of that day also. And that's exactly what Jesus says. If we look at the Greek, is he just says, you said it. In other words, you're right. And that's what that idiom means. So he is agreeing that he is the Messiah, that he is the God anointed and appointed deliverer for Israel, who was promised and prophesied since the Garden of Eden. He is also affirming that he is the Son of God. Now, this term, Son of God, is an important term to understand. We think of the Son of God as Jesus, okay? is the second person of the Trinity. Some people may think of Son of God as God has a child. You may see this in some cults. The term Son of God is not talking about who's your daddy, The son of God is an idiom that's talking about what is a person's character. So that if someone is characterized by by foolishness, then they're called the son of a fool. If someone was a prophet, they might be called the son of a prophet. If somebody is is destructive, they were called the son of Belial. If someone is divine, full deity, they're called the son of God. So that that noun at the end of the Son of phrase is the characteristic or the attribute that is being emphasized, so when Jesus is the Son of Man, that emphasizes his humanity. When Jesus is called the Son of God, that's emphasizing his full his, his full deity. so Jesus clearly agrees with him, says, "You said it, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man." Sitting at the right hand of power, now that was a circumlocution the jews didn 't like to say the name of God, so sometimes they would use other terms to refer to God in the mark parallel it's called it 's recorded as son of the blessed. It is simply a way of saying uh, that, i mean it 's the right hand of the blessed one it's simply saying the uh, saying uh, reference to full deity to God. And so he's claiming to be the Son of Man, who they will see sitting at the right hand of power. Now that's tying together two important passages. It ties together Daniel uh, seven fourteen, and it ties together Psalm one hundred and ten one that the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. So he's clearly making a claim to deity and they understand it, which is why you get this this reaction of the high priest who uh, tears his clothes claiming that this has been blasphemy so first of all let's look at the background there what does this term son of man mean this comes from daniel uh, 7 13 and 14 there daniel has seen a panorama of the future kingdoms on the earth and at the end of history There is this scene where the Ancient of Days is seen, that's God the Father, and one like the Son of Man comes to the Father, and he's given the kingdom. That's what's described here. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the same language Jesus uses as he's before Caiaphas. He uh, he's, he's, Daniel sees him coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom. But what's the next line? That all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. That includes the Romans. This is a gotcha moment for Caiaphas. Because he can look at this and drive this point home that, that Jesus is claiming he's a son of man who's going to rule over the Romans. Isn't that some, isn't he being a traitor? Isn't that um, something that the Romans would be uh, concerned about? But he's going to focus on his claim to deity and claim that that is blasphemy. So what happens very quickly here are several things. First, the high priest tears his garment. Now, the High priest was prohibited from, under most circumstances, from tearing his garments. If his wife died, if someone in his family died, he was not to show any kind of grief whatsoever. He was to be impartial and not emotional. That's Leviticus 21:10 that the, at the end there, the one who is consecrated to wear the garments, that's the high priest shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. He is to be an impartial, unemotional, non-emotional leader. And so uh, Caiaphas violates that, and he uh, tears his probably his inner garments, uh, which would signify that blasphemy has taken place. So again, we have a violation of the law. The high priest is forbidden to rend his garments. This, of course, is a violation of the Mosaic Law as well. So he tears his garments and uh, violates the law one more time. Another thing that happens at this point is that he claims that Jesus has spoken blasphemy. Now, that's a false claim because Jesus has not committed blasphemy. Blasphemy meant that he misused the name of God. In fact, the Talmud, which I know is two or 300 years later, has this to say, which reflects the Jewish tradition. He says, the Talmud says, if the accused blasphemes and reviles, but is not however guilty of pronouncing the unutterable name of God, that would be the blasphemy. So if he does, says all kinds of things, but doesn't utter the name of God, it's enough that he be scourged. In other words, if you don't if you, you can say all kinds of blasphemous things about God, but if you don't pronounce his name, you're going to be scourged, but you're not going to be executed. Well, scourging Jesus isn't going to be enough. They want him executed, but Caiaphas has just jumped on this and immediately ratcheted it, it up as if Jesus had committed blasphemy and everybody else is just going to go along with him. This is the height of injustice and so Caiaphas then will uh, turn uh, to the other high priest to the other chief priests that are there and say well what do you think and so he is calling upon a verdict and they say he is deserving of death so they've got uh, what they think will be uh, evidence that they can take to the Roman authorities and then they can have Jesus executed so Again, as they have done this, they've broken uh, the law related to two or three witnesses. They've also broken the law related to a person condemning himself by his own words. And another law that they violated at this point is that the verdict in a capital trial could not be announced at night. And so they've come to this verdict at night. All of this was to avoid any kind of a rush to judgment. Uh, furthermore, according to their laws, another law said that in the case of capital punishment, the trial and the guilty verdict could not be at the same time. Uh, they had to be separated by at least 24 hours. So they're violating that law and. Um, then they're they're voting by acclamation, and it was according to law to be done by uh individual vote count where they would the youngest would vote first and then the elders, so that the young ones would not be influenced by uh their heroes their the their mentors w- within uh the sanhedrin also it says that they all they all agreed and according to their law, a unanimous decision for guilt showed that the person was actually innocent, that the only way they would have a unanimous vote is if there was collusion and if there was something uh, wrong being done, and so uh, that verdict would be thrown out. So there are a number of these different things that happen, and then we learn in verse 67 that something else happens. After they announced that verdict, they spat in his face, they beat him, Mark tells us they blindfolded him, and they struck him with the palms of their hands. So this is the second time the Lord is physically abused, mistreated. The first time was the Roman soldier in John 18, and this now is the, is the second time that he is abused. But let's, let this, and this also violates, uh, the law. Judges were to be humane and kind. A person who was condemned to death was not supposed to be scourged or beaten beforehand. So this also is a violation. If he was beaten, there were uh, penalties that were assigned to that. If someone hit the accused with their fist, then they would pay a fine of four denarii. One denarius was equal to a day's wage, so four denarii was equal to four days' wages. So if somebody punched you with a closed fist and you were the accused, then they would be fined four days' uh, wages. If they, you, you were more greatly insulted and somebody slapped you with the open palm, that was punishable by a fine of 200 denarii, which is the equivalent of 200 days' wages so that's uh, almost 7 months worth of wages and then if you spat in someone's face that was even more insulting and that was a fine of 2 uh, of, excuse me 400 denarii which is uh, more than a year's wages and so Jesus suffered all of those indignities and they weren't holding any of the uh, men on the Sanhedrin uh, accountable, and so they're also ridiculing him and saying, "Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you?" Now, of course, this verdict is not legal because it's before the sun came up, and so we are going to have a third trial that's described in Matthew twenty-seven one to two, and it did not get copied over and there we read when morning came see they had to wait for that morning sacrifice they had to wait for dawn all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against jesus to put him to death again emphasizing the conspiracy and when they had bound him in verse two they led him away and delivered him to pontius pilate the governor the governor so verse one refers to the fact that they had to come back together after the sun came up Uh, now they would condemn him again and announce the sentence and then they would take him to Pilate and that would begin the Gentile stage or the Roman stage of the trial uh, which we'll come to week after next because next week we're going to look at what transpires between the second and the third trial and that is the denials of, of Peter the thing to remember from this is that none of us can claim to be victims of injustice more than Jesus. And yet Jesus, who's the perfect son of God and was not guilty of anything whatsoever, is punished unjustly. And he stands before all of his creatures there who condemn him. And yet he is relaxed and calm because he realizes God's in control. He rests in God. That's what it means to cast your care upon him because he cares for us. So we don't have any excuse to lose our relaxed mental attitude with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for what we learn as we study your word, from what we learn about our Lord's trials, the injustice, how he is the greatest victim of all victims and yet he gives us us an example of how to relax and trust in you. Father, we pray that you might strengthen and encourage us as we face challenges of a much lesser but similar nature in our own lives, that we learn to relax and trust in you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message or here this morning and they've never trusted Christ as Savior, they're not clear on salvation, that they would come to Realize and recognize that it is this perfect individual who is the eternal son of God and full humanity that he died on the cross. As a result of these trials, he will be sentenced to be executed. And there on that cross, he died in our place, the just for the unjust, paying the penalty for our sins, that we might receive a free gift of eternal life by simply believing or trusting in him now father we pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned today and we pray this in christ's name amen